This is In Residence, Town Hall Conversations. I'm Steve Scher. Robert Reich is Professor of Public Policy at University of California, Berkeley, Secretary of Labor under President Clinton. He's author of a number of books. His latest, Beyond Outrage, is now out in paperback. His movie, Inequality for All, is available on Netflix and iTunes, other places. He is in Seattle to talk about the $15 minimum wage and what it means in the state, in the city, and around the country. And we're at uh, the Arctic Club. This hotel? Is this hotel uh, a union hotel? I assume. I mean, why you, you guys put me up here. You'd never put me up in a non-union hotel. Yeah, SEIU guys. And, I, and that's what I figured. And there are not a lot of union hotels, but there are some. Why is that solidarity? Why is that consciousness important in this, this larger debate? Because we all are together in this economy. I mean, we forget it. We've been drubbed, you know, it's been drubbed into our heads that we're a bunch of individuals and we succeed or fail individually. But actually, uh, we succeed or fail together. We used to understand that. In the 1950s, over a third of American workers in the private sector were unionized. And because of that power, that bargaining power, American workers, even non-unionized workers, got a fair share of the economic gains from growth. And that helped the economy. Uh, that's one reason why those years, first three decades of the second, after the Second World War, were so uh, beneficial to so many people. But now, when we have fewer than 7% of private sector workers unionized, uh, unions just don't have that degree of bargaining power, uh, which explains a lot about why the economy is so top-heavy, why 95% of the economic gains are going to the top 1%. When you were first looking at these issues back in the, in the, in the 70s, even the 90s, was that part of the equation clear to you? Uh, it was not clear in the 1970s. In the late 80s, it began to be clear to me. I saw a divergence between, on the one hand, economic growth and productivity, and on the other hand, median wages. Now, a lot of people who, to whom I pointed out this divergence said it's just a statistical blip. It, will n it can't possibly go on. But then it went on. It went on uh, through the 80s. It went on even worse and to a greater extent in the 1990s uh, when I was Secretary of Labor. Uh, there were still some economists who said uh, this is just a temporary problem. But by then, it was cl fairly clear that something profoundly important and troubling had happened to the United States economy. Uh, there was no longer a wide sharing of the benefits from growth. Almost all the benefits were going to the top. Technology, globalization, a slowing of investment. During the 90s, why was there a, why was there an, a, a thinking that, for example, NAFTA, the, the first of the big pushes in, in treaties for globalization, why was there a thinking that that was going to improve the lot of American workers? I think the rationale for NAFTA was that since the Kennedy round, that is the John F. Kennedy round of trade opening negotiations, uh, trade had been a positive sum game. That is, we gained in terms of having better access to low cost goods and services and other nations gained in terms of having more wealth and the ability to have more stable regimes. Uh, we didn't fully appreciate that starting in the late 1970s and through the 1980s, uh, something had changed. Uh, American manufacturing was much 
more uh, fragile. Uh, the entire structure of the economy had moved from these big oligopolies uh, with uh, very strong trade unions to much more vulnerable competitors uh, that could easily be undercut by foreign uh, rivals. Uh, it wasn't so much NAFTA that did it. That is, the North American Free Trade Act did uh, result in some companies moving south of the border, but they promptly moved to China. I mean, I, I, you know, blink an eye and they were off to China. And they didn't even stay in China. I blink another eye and they have gone to Southeast Asia and then uh, many of them are now in, in Bangladesh. The fundamental question is, uh, is, there a, is there a different way we can compete? Germany has faced the same global headwinds and yet German median wages are now higher than they are in the United States. And the top 1% in Germany, instead of taking home 22% of total income, as the top 1% does here in the United States, takes home 11% of total income. Uh, in other words, Germany and other countries that are advanced countries, like the United States, have done a better job than the United States fighting these headwinds of globalization and technological change and preserving their middle classes. So. What did they do? Number one, they kept unions. They kept unions that were strong. Uh, they raised their minimum wages. They invested heavily in education, uh, starting with early childhood education all the way through world-class technical and vocational education and access to higher education. Uh, they had tax systems that were progressive. That is, they took more of a bite out of the dollars of the rich than out of the dollars of the poor. They avoided uh, the kind of sales taxes that we often have in the United States. They're quite regressive. Uh, they made upward mobility very central to their economic plans. Uh, they didn't shy away from safety nets because when their economies plunged, as they certainly did like everybody else's in the Great Recession, they knew it was important for people to have enough financial leverage to turn around and buy things so that the economy could keep going. Now, having said that, Europe is in trouble. Germany is in trouble. I don't mean to suggest that all these other economies uh, are necessarily out of the woods, uh, but they have chosen a set of policies that are designed to improve middle class wages and thereby the wages of everybody who aspires to join the middle class instead of laissez-faire policies and trickle-down supply-side policies, as in the United States, that have basically enriched the very rich. You've been making this argument, these arguments. They've gotten clearer. You've gotten more uh, data. Thomas Piketty and his colleague producing more data. Why, why, why do we continue to follow the same paths? Is this a political question? Is this about who controls the democracy in the end? Yes, this is a political question because, you see, as more and more uh, of the economy, uh, the wealth and income in the economy is concentrated at the top, uh, so too more and more of the political power is concentrated at the top. Uh, there is a direct relationship between money and politics uh, through campaign contributions, through lobbying, uh, through public relations, uh, through sort of uh, nudge and wink uh, job offers that await uh, certain public officials when they get out. Uh, and that... Anybody in mind? Uh, no. Uh, that means that uh, you've got a, a political system that can either disregard 
the needs and wishes of a vast majority of people, or it can manipulate them into thinking that something is good for them when it's not. So the alternative then is, is or, or the response is what? Uh, the, the first step is getting big money out of politics. That, that, that is proving so difficult. So what, like what are the steps we take? Is it, is it to throw support behind unions that are starting to make the next step? Look, we do everything. Uh, we support unions. We try to get big money out of politics. We work at the local level and the state level to raise minimum wages, even though Washington is gridlocked. Uh, we organize and mobilize people. Uh, we make people feel that they are uh, effective, that they have agency, that they have power over both the economy and over uh, our democracy, because that's really what it should be. Uh, and we cause a ruckus. In other words, you know, I'm not a politician any longer. I mean, I never was, but I, I no longer hold public office. Uh, so I don't have to really worry about being elected or saying things that make people pleased. I can call it exactly the way it is. Uh, you might remember that when I was Secretary of Labor, I did that very often and got into trouble. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, uh, one of the great uh, pleasures I have had in recent years in terms of books and movies and videos and other things that I've done is the, uh, just the, 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 the ability to help people see what's happening. I was in Knoxville, Tennessee a couple of days ago, and a young woman came up to me with tears in her eyes. She had just seen Inequality for All. She said, you know, I'm poor, I'm white, uh, I have not gone to any food banks, I've been sh ashamed of my poverty, I've been working three jobs, I, my health has been compromised, and I saw the movie and I realized it's not my fault. It's, it's the system. And I think your movie saved my life because I'm now going to food banks, I'm getting the assistance I can, and I am starting to come back. Well, I want more people in this country to understand it's not their fault. They are struggling, they are losing ground, and not only is it not their fault, but they can actually join together with others and make a difference. I was struck by a Nick Hanauer in your movie, who's a, who's a very wealthy man and is also very socially conscious. He's part of the 15 Now movement. Uh, Talking about the uh, number of people, number of pillows he can sell to people, or the number of pairs of jeans that people can buy, that the idea of a middle-class economy is that there's a lot of people, they can purchase a lot of things, rich people can't do all the purchasing. Why does that argument seem to fall on deaf ears to the, the I'm going to call them the globalists, if I may, the technocrats, the, 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 the corporate heads? Do they look out at the world and say, you know, America's got 300 million, but there's 4 billion that I haven't reached yet, so why should I worry about them? Or do they, do they why don't they feel it in their pocketbook? Well, some of them do. Uh, now, Nick has spoken out, but others also, a uh, few other CEOs have spoken out. Warren Buffett, for example, uh, has talked a lot about the problem. Uh, even uh, Lloyd Blankfein, the head of Goldman Sachs, recently said that this degree of inequality is socially unstable. It's bad for the country. The problem is twofold. Number one, as you just suggested, you've got a lot of big global companies that think that they can keep on selling to uh, the rest of the world, even if the American middle class just doesn't have the purchasing power any longer. Uh, they're wrong, by the way, uh, and they're finding out that they're wrong because the rest of the world is in trouble. 
Europe is very close to recession. Japan is still in the gravitational pull of its 10-year recession. Uh, China is uh, not going to be the savior that many American companies think it is. Uh, the Chinese econ uh, economy is much weaker than it looks. In fact, cracks are already appearing in it. And many developing countries uh, that are commodity-based, Brazil, Australia, they depend upon uh, China and uh, Europe and the United States to sell their commodities to. If, if, we, if the major uh, economies in the world start uh, faltering, as we are faltering, uh, then many of the developing countries are going to be uh, the next. Uh, so I don't think the global, the big global companies uh, are correct in assessing that they're just going to continue to be able to sell regardless. But you've got a second problem, and that is that a lot of CEOs of big companies will understand the issue we are discussing in its broad uh, sort of framework. But when it comes to their own companies, uh, they still want to cut labor costs and maximize profits. Uh, in other words, it's possible for them to keep in their heads two completely contradictory ideas. Uh, that is, I am going to make a lot of money by cutting labor costs and increasing my profits, even though I know that if every other company follows the same strategy, we're not going to have a middle class capable of buying all the stuff that I'm producing. Well, uh that's a definition of, of madness, I think, in holding two contradictory ideas, conflicting ideas. What, what shakes them up? I mean, we don't want a whole depression to shake them up. Uh, or is it simply, so what shakes them up? Well, I think that uh, if you look back in history, the progressive era from 1901 to 1914, the 1930s, uh, the 1960s, to some very important extent, uh, the economy began working for more people because politics changed in the direction of widening the benefits of economic growth. Uh, all of those times were marked by two things. Number one, uh, just before those times began, uh, the economy really was reaching ridiculously unequal proportions. And secondly, business leaders combined with grassroots organizations came together and started a social movement. Uh, in the progressive era, it was for uh, antitrust, busting up the big uh, trusts, uh, expanding the franchise, uh, limiting corporate contributions and corruption of the political process, regulating pure food and drug. Uh, at the state level, fighting Bob LaFollette in Wisconsin, uh, a 40-hour work week uh, with time and a half for overtime, a minimum uh, standards for workers, and even a minimum wage. And then the 1930s, the nation had to do something. I mean, it was, it was a depression. In the 1960s, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and Martin Luther King was moving closely to working with labor unions uh, on a poor people's campaign and seeing the relationship between uh, broad-based prosperity and our democracy. Well, it's going to happen again. Uh, we can't go in the direction we're going. Uh, you can't have 95% of the economic gains uh, from in this recovery going to the top 1%. Uh, and uh, the median household income dropping. Uh, it's just not sustainable. Assess Eric Holder's um, role in, in the Obama administration and the Obama administration's role in coming out of this great, uh, this, this great downturn and uh, either setting us on the right path or the wrong path. 
Uh, well, I'll give them credit, um, the Obama administration, for, number one, uh, avoiding another Great Depression. We easily could have had another Great Depression. Uh, we had a Great Recession instead uh, because of uh, some very unpopular policies, such as the stimulus program and even the bank bailout. I, I think that, personally, I think that the bailout of the bank should have accompanied, been accompanied with conditions on the banks uh, for helping homeowners and uh, not taking big bonuses. But nevertheless, uh, it did stop Wall Street from caving in. Uh, I also credit the Obama administration with pushing as hard as it could against a very recalcitrant Republican administration for extending unemployment insurance, for raising, raising the minimum wage, for uh, equal pay, pay parity for women, uh, for a number of, of things that have not yet come to be, but nevertheless, they fought very hard and have fought very hard and continue to. However, here's the problem. Uh, number one, Ironically, if you don't have a Great Recession uh, or Great Depression, we had a Great Recession, if you don't have a Great Depression like we had in the 1930s, you do not have the political upheaval that you need to give you a mandate to do very big things that change fundamentally uh, the political organization of your economy. Uh, now, I'm not wishing a depression on us. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, but that was one of the ironic, paradoxical outcomes of saving the economy from the Great Depression of number two. Uh, also, uh, I, you mentioned Eric Holder. I, I think he did a lot of very important and good things. I, the only problem is he didn't really go after any individuals. Uh, you know, of all of those big banks that defrauded so many millions of people, uh, you would expect that there would be a lot of high-level executives who knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, and it would not have been that difficult to uh, make, well, to send some people to jail. I mean, look at the savings and loan crisis. I mean, there were about a 1,000 uh, executives who went to jail uh, in the meltdown after the uh, terrible, you know, the Enron and uh, all of those corporate uh, frauds of the early uh, 2000s, uh, they went to jail. I mean, uh, if, you, if you simply penalize banks, that's a cost of doing business. Well, so what does that tell you about the people who, uh, what does that tell you about the power structure in this country today? Well, what it tells you is that the power structure, particularly Wall Street, is very, very influential in Democratic as well as Republican administrations. I mean, uh, look, uh, Democratic candidates court Wall Street. That's where the money is. Uh, now, does that mean that Democrats, once they are in office, are willing to do things like uh, get rid of the carried interest loophole that benefits the private equity and hedge fund managers? Are Democrats willing to take on uh, the big banks and uh, cut them down to size and use antitrust laws to uh, make sure that none is too big to fail? Are Democrats willing to resurrect the Glass-Steagall Act of the 1930s? I mean, Bill Clinton got rid of it in 1999. Um, uh, that's a big question mark hanging over the Democratic Party. Certainly Republicans are not willing to do any of that. Critics of $15 an hour minimum wage who are mounting campaigns in this town have uh, taken to saying it just can't happen too quickly because it'll disrupt uh, businesses and it'll frighten businesses. What's your response to the 
that idea? And how quickly could it happen, do you think? Well, my understanding is that it's already uh, a fairly gradual process. Um, you know, I don't know the details. I don't live here, but I, what I've read, uh, it is uh, there's a phase-in period. Yeah. Well, some people think it's too slow, and it should be much quicker. Well, I, I you know, I, I think that uh, again, I don't want to be presumptuous. I'm not from here, but it seems to me on the slow side. Uh, but having said that, it, it certainly provides businesses and individuals and workers an opportunity to adjust. Uh, to these changes. I mean, the, again, the changes are good for business. Uh, we are not seeing uh, anywhere around the country where minimum wages have been raised a negative effect on employment. In fact, if anything, there has been a positive effect on employment. I guess I'm asking because shouldn't this be a nationwide effort? How, how long should the nation as a whole try to get workers up to a floor of $15 an hour? Uh, the nation should be doing it right now. I mean, if you just simply take the 1968 minimum wage and adjust it for inflation, just purchasing power, it would be uh, way over $10 an hour. And then if you further adjust for productivity improvements since 1968, you know, the economy is one and a half times as large as it was in 1968, uh, then you have a minimum wage that should probably be closer to $20 an hour nationwide. Now, Obviously, that's not going to happen anytime soon. But you do need to have a much higher minimum wage across the country. Okay. And, uh, you know, you guys are leading the way. And finally, what do unions look like when they start to organize all the workers that are unorganized now in hotels, in uh, health care? I mean, do, is, that, is that where you see strength arising five years from now, ten years from now? Yeah. That's the future of the union movement, not in industrial unions because it's very difficult. Uh, these uh, big industries and manufacturers are coping with not only globalization but also technological displacement. Go into a big factory today, you've got robots and numerically controlled machine tools. You don't have the old assembly line. Where you have a lot of new jobs is in retail, retail chains, restaurants, restaurant chains, hotels, big hotels, big hotel chains, hospitals, uh, surface transportation, uh, child care, uh, home care, elder care. You know, these are the places where you've got low-wage workers. Most of the new jobs are in these areas, and they need a union. And then those people are able to afford college for their kids and to, to take the next step. But what, would, what were those kids step into, do you think? Uh, well, if those people can afford to get more money, they can afford to turn around and buy a lot of more stuff, which is going to create more jobs and more opportunities. We don't know exactly what the jobs of the future are going to be. Uh, I personally think that there is a great need for technicians uh, to install, upgrade, monitor, and improve upon all the digital technology that's taking over our hospitals and our offices and uh, almost every other place of business. Uh, and this is where we really do need brain power, and people can be trained for this. Uh, I'm not against liberal arts education. I think that that's important for a very different reason. We need to train and develop uh, people who can lead full and productive and uh, responsible lives and be citizens. Uh, but there's also an argument for, in this country, as in Germany, having a world-class system of vocational and technical education, which we don't yet have. Still driving a Mini Cooper? Yep, same Mini Cooper. 
Anything you want to say that I didn't ask you? Anything that uh, people need to know? You listen to that public radio show called uh, Dinner Party Download. They say tell us something about yourself that people don't know or, or should know or something that just in general people don't know. I, I put that to you. Anything that we should know about you or about things you've been thinking about that people maybe need to know? Well, there, there are a lot of things. I mean, uh, but I was just talking to uh, Nick Hanauer. I just had lunch with him. And uh, he asked me how long I've known Hillary Rodham Clinton. And I thought back and remembered that I had dated her once in college. Really? Yeah. Now, I didn't really remember that until a New York Times reporter in the 2008 election said he had come across a collection of her uh, letters from college, which he apparently mentioned dating me. Uh, so uh, when the New York Times reporter called and asked me, is there anything you can remember from that date that might shed light on how she would be as a president, uh, I not only thought that was the worst question I'd ever heard and most absurd, but I said back to him with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek that all I remember of that date is that when we went to the movies, she wanted an inordinate amount of butter on her popcorn. Uh, then I didn't hear anything on the other, other end of the phone for about 30 seconds, and I thought he had hung up. But I said, are you still there? And he said, yes, I'm just writing this all down. Uh, so we do, do also need to talk about the quality of our media. <laughs> Come on, that's gold. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Steve. Good to see you. And you.